I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas. Tonight we reach back into the Ideas archive to present a program first broadcast in 1990. He once made the joke that there are critics who could find things of value in the public records office, and then there were critics like himself who couldn't find the public records office. He's a critic who, who takes familiar subject matter and crystallizes it for people, shows it, that it has a pattern that people hadn't realized before. He's not a research-type critic who comes up with new subject matter by, by doing various types of research. In more than 20 books, Northrop Fry has produced one of the most influential bodies of literary criticism in the 20th century. But he's also spent his career as a dedicated teacher of the young, and his teaching and scholarship have fed each other. He said that a teacher who is not a scholar is soon going to be out of touch with his own subject, and a scholar who is not a teacher is soon going to be out of touch with the world. As a teacher and a scholar, Fry has what he calls an evangelical attitude, a belief that only the cultural power of religion and the arts can set the human spirit free. Culture is the ultimate authority in society, even though culture may be impotent to impose its authority and in effect would be false to itself if it did. Mao Zedong says that power comes out of the barrel of a gun. Now, if that is your conception of power, the human race is not going to survive the 21st century. Culture is an alternative conception of power. Yes. It's utterly weak physically, but it's the only power there is, the only surviving power there is. At the University of Toronto, where he has taught for more than 50 years, Northrop Fry embodies the authority of culture. As a teacher, he has kept alive a vision of the university as a community which really is turned towards the unity of knowledge, as the Latin roots of our word university imply. Bristling at the cliché that calls the university an ivory tower, Fry has always insisted that it's just the opposite, the engine room of society, the place that preserves from the ages all that is permanent and valuable in human life. Tonight, in the second part of our intellectual biography of Northrop Fry, we reflect on Fry the teacher, theorist of education and citizen of Canada. The program is written and presented by David Cayley. In 1929, as a boy of 17 from Moncton, New Brunswick, Northrop Fry enrolled at the University of Toronto's Victoria College. He found there a community so congenial that he never really left. Except for a stint at Oxford in the late 30s and the occasional sabbatical year, Fry has remained associated with Victoria College as a student, teacher, principal, chancellor, and ambassador to the world. Back in the 20s, when Fry first arrived at Vic, the Department of English was dominated by the figures of E.J. Pratt, whom Fry once called English Canada's most important poet, and Pelham Edgar. Pauline McGibbon, later Ontario's Lieutenant Governor, was one of Fry's classmates. We both took Shakespeare from Pelham Edgar in our second year, and I remember that vividly because I can still see Pelham Edgar sitting up on the platform with a gown and his legs wrapped around the little table that he used as a desk, and the whole time was spent really as a dialogue between Pelham Edgar and Northrop Fry. The story was that Norrie had read everything in Shakespeare before he ever came to the university. And so he was the only one who could really talk back and forth and question Pelham Edgar. And where the rest of us sat there like nimkapoops and just listened to the two of them. English teaching at Vic was conducted on somewhat different principles than elsewhere at the University of Toronto. At neighboring University College, for example, where a rather stodgy scholarship prevailed, literature was subsumed within the history of ideas. At Vic, Edgar and Pratt were interested in literature itself and in trying to bring it alive for their students. Fry has continued in their footsteps. Though never depreciating specialized scholarship, he has always preferred for himself the path of broad, encyclopedic learning and he has always remained a teacher of undergraduates. 
teaching of undergraduates seems to me to be where the action is. That's where minds are being opened and admitted to the what I've always called the engine room of society, where all the all the working is going on, and. Uh, I feel that the graduate school is a place where the good people ought to be teaching themselves anyway, and it's also a very highly pluralistic and specialized, also competitive in these days, school, cutthroat competition. So I, I find the undergraduate classroom really the educational center. Education is at the heart of Northrop Fry's social philosophy. For him, it's education that frees the intellect and the imagination from their bondage to unexamined ideologies or beliefs. Political philosophers have invoked a social contract to account for our submission to a political state. Fry has invented a corresponding myth to explain how people come to accept the non-compulsory authority of culture. He calls it the educational contract. In the educational contract, there is a relationship of teacher and student in which it is paradoxically the student who knows less than the teacher, but the teacher who asks most of the questions. And the process going on is the Socratic process in which the uh, relation of teacher-student as such is a somewhat embarrassing one, and you try to get over it as fast as possible in order to make a, a community of searchers. And that's how the contract takes shape. The first stage of this process, as Fry has said, is the Socratic one, in which received ideas are unsettled and stock responses challenged. The next stage is to bring students into the presence of what Fry calls that mythical and metaphorical organism, which is literature. For years, Fry taught a course at Victoria College on the Puritan poet John Milton. But taught, as Fry's former student Margaret Atwood has written, isn't exactly the word. Fry, recalled Atwood, said, let there be Milton, and lo, there was. If I'm lecturing on Milton, for example, the only presence that has any business being in that room is Milton. And if I become an opaque presence in myself and people listen to me instead of listening to Milton through me, then I'm becoming some sort of fake priest. The only authority in the classroom is the authority of the subject taught, not the, not the teacher. And uh, when I teach, I try to trans transmute myself into a kind of transparent medium so that the, the room in theory, is full of the presence of what I'm teaching, Milton or whatever, from one end behind me to the other end behind the students. And it's a long, slow process for the students to realize that they are, in effect, within the personality of Milton and are not being talked to by me. What will you hope will happen in the room? Well, people have talked a good deal about the long pauses in my lectures, and uh, the thing they don't notice is that the long pauses come partly out of respect for the students. I'm listening to the echo of Milton from my students. It takes a long time for that to uh, penetrate, percolate through to my students. Sometimes, for students who weren't too comfortable inside the personality of Milton, this way of teaching could be unsettling. I remember once when uh, a number of uh, Catholic students from St. Michael's came over to listen to my Milton lectures because for some reason or other nobody was teaching Milton at St. Michael's then. And one uh, girl stamped out of the classroom in a fury saying that she was a Catholic and she wasn't going to have her church insulted in that way. And I took that as something of a compliment because it meant that she was confusing Milton with me. And... Uh, when my Blake book came out, a lot of reviewers complained that they couldn't tell where Blake stopped and where I began. Well, that was the way I wanted it. Incidentally, Marshall McLuhan wrote a quite appreciative review of the Blake book in which he said that this was a new type of criticism that people are going to have to get used to, the transmission of a poet through the entire personality of the writer. 
Fry's capacity to get inside his subject, his devotion to his students, his wit, and his wide learning all helped to make his classes a legend at the University of Toronto. One graduate from the 40s told me she was turned away from one of Fry's courses because the Vic students wanted to keep Fry to themselves. And the mystique increased, according to Fry's biographer John Eyre, with the publication of Fearful Symmetry, Fry's path-breaking study of the poetry of William Blake. Once Fearful Symmetry came out, then he really did become a star. And coincidentally, around that time, Fry started officially started his Bible course, and this uh, used to uh, attract great mobs from all across the, the canvas so that people were sitting down in the aisles and on radiator covers, and, and um, it was a very controversial course, too, because uh, the, the canvas fundamentalists thought that he was emphasizing too much uh, mythological approach to the Bible. But there was, there was a group uh, called the Fridolaters uh, at uh, Victoria College that um, used to sit around and, and talk endlessly uh, about what Fry was thinking about. And they used to read Fearful Symmetry, like the Bible, and they called Fry God. <laughs> what did God say today? And uh, Fry knew about that because I, I noticed a little reference in his diary. Uh, I don't know where this, this God business comes from. <laughs> and uh, he he thanked um, some old friends um, in, in his diary uh, for not treating him as if he's just about ready to take off for the heavens. This phase of intense, and to Fry, somewhat embarrassing adulation, eventually passed. But Fry always remained a teacher who made a difference to his students. Johan Aiken is a professor in the Faculty of Education at the University of Toronto. She was a student at Vic in the mid-50s. Fry was uh, uh, an inspiration to us as a teacher. Sometimes when there'd be dead silence after a, a question he asked, we'd all feel like uh, nincompoops, and I think he thought we were. But uh, when we did answer, our answers were always treated with the utmost respect. Uh, and when Fry, many years later, came to visit my classes, uh, in the Master of Arts and Teaching program and also when I was teaching a course called Unlocking the Great Code for the School of Continuing Studies, Fry continued to treat every honest response, however inane, with respect and somehow wrested from it some meaning, some sense that affirmed the student and took the group on to uh, another question another viewpoint, another way of thinking. It was a genius in the, uh, the now much maligned uh, question and answer uh, technique of teaching. He knew us. He knew us by name. And of course, uh, Nori and Helen always made the students at Vic feel like family and uh, always, in very real sense, embraced us. Fry extended to his students the freedom he'd always taken for himself, the freedom to think independently and to trust his own experience. He never let pedantry or scholarly punctilio encumber his own genius, and he wanted his students to hear the living voice of literature rather than engage in a kind of parody of scholarship. Fry told us, and we dared to believe him, or at least I did, that um, if we wanted to know more about Dickens, we should read another book by Dickens, not books about Dickens. We couldn't read enough anyway to uh, uh, help us very much, and all we'd do would be get stuck with someone else's assumptions and somebody else's interpretations. So I wrote an essay once uh, for Nori about Paradise Lost and Prometheus Unbound. And in the bibliography, it simply had Milton and Shelley. And then I'd written, and that's all. And Nori wrote underneath, and that's fine. So uh, I was allowed to use my own voice, not just allowed to, actually. We were encouraged to use our own voices. We were encouraged to do what people would now call engage the text. We were simply encouraged to read it and read it with depth and read it again and again and read other things by the same author and then to trust ourselves and have at it and write. Fry encouraged freedom and self-confidence in his students, but he also insisted on discipline. Freedom, 
he has always said, is not simply a matter of doing what you want. Freedom is wanting to do what you have to do. And this kind of freedom is always rooted in practiced habit. There is no antithesis between freedom and necessity. If you're playing the piano and exercising your free will about whether you will play the right notes or the wrong notes, you're not playing worth a damn. You only know what you're doing when what you want to do and what you have to do are exactly the same thing. Fry's insistence that true freedom only roots in a ground first cultivated by patient habit did not endear him to the student radicals of the later 60s. Freedom now was their cry. One Maoist pamphlet of the time described Fry as the high priest of clerical obscurantism. These were probably Fry's unhappiest years as a teacher, and sometimes he felt himself quite isolated, but he continued to speak out forcefully. The uh, student activism of the 60s was something I had really very little sympathy with. It started out with a group of students in Berkeley feeling that they were not being paid attention to as students, something I could profoundly sympathize with. Uh, as it went on, they became more and more attracted by the cliches of uh, revolutionary ideology, and uh, then they turned into something which was no longer intellectual. In fact, that was the thing that sickened me about the student movement, was that it was an anti-intellectual movement in the one place in society where it had no business being. And uh, once a student gets on a self-righteous kick, he becomes utterly impervious to argument because he's still too young and insecure to uh, listen to anything except the applause of his own conscience. And uh, I knew that that movement would fall dead in a very short time because it had no social roots. It wasn't like feminism or black emancipation or anything of that sort with a, with a real social cause behind it. How was it anti-intellectual? It was anti-intellectual in that it used anarchist and neo-fascist tactics of breaking up meetings, occupying buildings, and that kind of thing. They felt they were doing something when they were doing this kind of nonsense. The element of desperation in this was something I think you could understand, right? The, f the feeling of unreality in the world um, that, that was provoking this, yes, you were sympathetic but, to. But it was a counter-unreality that they were, they, they were trusting to. And uh, what I find hopeful about the present political situation all across the world is the gradual loss of belief in the validity of, of ideology, qua ideology. How did you respond to the demand for relevance, let's say? What did that slogan mean to you? I said that it was a favorite word of Nancy's. Meaning? Meaning that all this stuff was going in a, in a neo-fascist direction. The Nancy's talked about Zweckwissenschaft, about target knowledge. And that came to mean sooner or later that useful meant essentially, essential for waging war. And that attitude to the arts and sciences not only destroyed art and science in Germany for a whole generation, but it helped materially in losing the war for them. The demand that the university curriculum be made relevant to the current interests of students, Fry considers antithetical to the true purpose of a university. It is precisely what is irrelevant about what we study, Fry said during the 60s, that is the liberalizing element in it. Universities exist to unsettle our prejudices, not to reinforce them. As a teacher, Fry has lived this commitment to liberal education. But during the course of his career, the university has changed in ways that have made it harder to realize his ideals. It's changed as society has changed. The 19th century university was the very small college, which was the training ground for young gentlemen. That meant that all relations were personal, tutor and student with their private hours. And uh, as uh, the university has begun to reflect more advanced industrial and technological conditions, 
And the world has, of course, irremediably pluralistic in both the arts and the sciences. It has to be a world of specialists. It can't function otherwise. So you get a great deal of highly specialized scholarship, which makes a problem for the person who still is teaching undergraduates and is still in that personal relationship. And it throws more responsibility on the undergraduate, too. What I'm wondering, really, I guess, is whether the university, as you would like it to be, and as it must be to play the role you see for it in society, whether that university actually exists any longer, except insofar as you continue to do what you do and there must be others like you. The university, as I would like it, is, uh, does not exist. The only thing you can do is to fight rear guard actions in small corners. Did it once exist, or <laughs> well, um, or was it always an ideal? It was always an ideal. It was always an ideal, really. But uh, where you have a, a small, intimate college with uh, teachers and students personally known to one another, you have the possibility, the training ground for uh, for something closer to the ideal, as I would see it. Victoria College in the early thirties was close enough to this ideal to captivate Fry as a student, and he retained a lifelong loyalty. Today, he is Victoria's chancellor, a largely ceremonial position. But for eight years, he also occupied the much more demanding post of principal. Fry's loyalty to Vic and the University of Toronto held even during the period of his greatest fame in the 60s, when various American universities tried to lure him away. I was getting a great many offers to go elsewhere. I know there must have been people who felt that I was just playing with these offers and pretending to consider them, but that wasn't true. Some of them were involved very serious and, in fact, even agonizing decisions. And uh, the thing that began to grow uh, in my mind as I went on was uh, the feeling, first of all, what religion am I closest to, the United Church of Canada? What political party do I feel most in sympathy with, the CCF, later the NDP? Neither of those can be translated into American terms directly. And then, later on, when I became a better known public figure, I began to realize that uh, there would be some feeling of resentment in Canada if I left. And, and I couldn't let that influence me beyond a certain point, but the feeling that I, that there would be a certain betrayal in my leaving had as its flip side, the feeling that I was making a contribution here, and I had a function here, which uh, I would not have had somewhere else. I uh, also went through a period which impressed me a great deal when I was principal of Victoria, and uh, so many young people academics who had gone from Canada to the United States, how desperately they wanted to come back again. During what period were you principal? From 1959 to 1967. That was a long time. Well, a hell of a long time. And, and was it onerous? Yes. Uh, that is, it. Uh, I had a... Uh, extraordinarily conscientious and able president over me, Arthur Moore, and because of him, it was, a, it was a tolerable job, but it was not a congenial one. How did you get it in the first place? I seemed to be the fall guy, that was all, and uh, as the academic head of the college, that made some sort of sense. I, uh, I've always been a bit of a pushover for anything that could be sold to me as public service. That was why I stayed for nine bloody years on the uh, CRTC. Did it, well, I don't know what it cut into, because it doesn't seem to have cut into your writing. No, it didn't cut into my writing. I mean, you, you kept up a phenomenal because writing the, during that whole period. Yeah, as well. Books I, uh, appearing almost annually. The only reason I... How did you do it? Well, I had to, because my writing isn't something that I run. It runs me. I have to do what it says, and uh, and I had to give it priority. There's nothing else I could do. 
That meant, of course, that I skimped a good deal on my administrative duties, but there wasn't any way out of it. And didn't sleep much some nights? Well, that's what people said, certainly. Fry was relieved of the job of principal in 1967. Today, the main burden Victoria imposes on him is the weight of his celebrity. In 1983, Vic's new academic building, where Fry has an office, was renamed Northrop Fry Hall. A bust of Fry commands the stairs as you enter. Next door, at the E.J. Pratt Library, one wall is dominated by an immense portrait which shows Fry seated as if on an invisible chair in midair. Fry biographer, John Eyre. Two or three years ago, I, I actually ran into him in, in the Vic Library, and he was just looking through the old file index, which is, uh, I suppose, typically uh, Northrop Fry, that he was, he was in the old index, the old card index, uh, not even the new one, uh, let alone the computer. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he, he looked uh, rather furtive, <laughs> you know, because you, you could see this huge portrait actually uh, right up on the wall nearby and uh you know of course everybody knows who he is and <laughs> uh he, he doesn't he doesn't like that kind of monumentalization uh, but at the same time he he he's gracious enough that if if others think that that's what should be done then he'll sort of go along with it 3 years ago after the death of his equally celebrated colleague CB McPherson Fry was asked to speak at the memorial service. In his remarks, Fry alluded wistfully to the days when he and McPherson had been junior faculty, and their encounters just the chance meeting of friends, not a collision of monuments. Those who have known Northrop Fry as a teacher are a tiny fraction of those who have known him as a writer. He has published more than 20 books, as well as numerous uncollected reviews, articles, and other occasional pieces. Robert Denham's annotated bibliography, listing writing by and about Fry, runs to more than 400 pages. But Fry the teacher is very much a part of Fry the writer. His encounter with students has given shape to his ideas. The classroom, much more than the private study, has been his laboratory. Teaching to me is a way of uh, trying out ideas. I uh, used to say that I could never believe anything I said until I'd said it to students and watched their reaction. And uh, I've always found that teaching and writing fed into each other, that uh, I made up my mind almost at once as a lecturer that I would take no notes. I would not write any notes for my lecture until after I'd given the lecture. What gets written down, in other words, is only what has already been proved in oral performance. It's a principle requiring a fairly formidable memory, but audiences from Rome to Roanoke, Virginia, testify to having heard extempore from Fry's lips what they have later read word for word in one of his books. It's also a principle with interesting implications for the education of younger children, a subject in which Fry has always been interested. In teaching youngsters to write, you throw a dead language at them and ask them to decipher it. And um, I, th I think the obvious way to teach a person to write is to listen to the way they talk and try to give some shape and direction to that talk as it goes on. There's a great current of verbal energy that comes out of any child, and, and uh, the thing to do is to, is to direct that, uh, not to lead him into a um, uh, sort of rat's maze of subjects and predicates and objects before, he's, before his time. Well, we do see an extraordinary amount of uh, fairly dead prose in the world at the moment. Uh, I know there's more people writing than ever before, mm -hmm. but do you think that might relate to this? That current of energy is not present in the writing? Yes. Uh, one thing that I've attacked all my critical life is the notion that prose is the language of ordinary speech. 
the language of ordinary speech is associative, and prose is a very highly skilled, sophisticated form of, of, uh, of writing. Almost nobody speaks prose. It's a written form, but people who approach it without having trained their speaking style, I think, give the impression of deciphering something from linear B. They, uh, they write what is, in effect, for them, a dead language. The liveliness of Fry's prose has made his work accessible to a much wider public than most literary critics can hope to address. Indeed, while Fry has been perfecting his trenchant form of public address, most literary critics have been going in the other direction. The critics, generally lumped together as post-structuralists or deconstructionists, are a very notable example. Why, Fry asked a few years ago, must they express their quite interesting ideas in a style which reminded him, he said, of a horse slurping water? I felt as I went on and more and more uh, deconstructive phenomenological and other critical schools developed that they were getting to a point where they could only talk to each other. In fact, I noticed that back in the anatomy days where I said that criticism had a mystery of religion but no gospel. That was why I tended increasingly to address a general cultivated public rather than the, uh, the primarily the scholarly or academic audience. The style in which Fry addresses the public is marked by its penetrating wit. And this wit is not just an adornment, but the very heart of his approach. The style is the man. Often called a philosopher, Fry sees himself working within the spirit of poetry, image, aphorism, and metaphor, much more than argument, direct his writing. The most modes of thinking in words are founded on the subject-object split, the thing that Blake called the cloven fiction. And uh, a descriptive writer, a scientist or a historian, works with a body of words and a body of events or things out there, and one reflects the other. Uh, a logical writer is, uh, is writing so that one statement follows out of its predecessor. The rhetorical writer writes to produce a kinetic effect on his on his uh, reader. The poet is the person who enters into a world where subject and object have become the same thing. There are different aspects of the same thing. It's a very primitive language, but the poet speaks it. The aphoristic quality in your writing, which is very pronounced. Yes. Uh, how does that relate to your method of composition? I keep notebooks, and I write uh, very sharp paragraphs in them. And uh, everything I write is the insertion of continuity into those aphorisms. Aphorisms express insight, and insights, not arguments, are what Fry's writings yield. His gift is to see things whole, and this wholeness of vision permeates each part of his writing. In a new book called Northrop Fry, Anatomy of His Criticism, Bert Hamilton quotes this single portentous sentence from Fry's book, Anatomy of Criticism. Literature is a human apocalypse, wrote Fry, man's revelation to man, and criticism is not a body of adjudications, but the awareness of that revelation the last judgment of mankind. Hamilton then claims that if this sentence alone of all Fry's writings had survived, that he could still, like an anthropologist shaping Neanderthal man from one bone sliver, reconstruct the anatomy. Bert Hamilton is a professor of English at Queen's University. Fry has this very special quality that he has an encompassing vision so that, first of all, all of his works, uh, even an article, uh, one of his written about 300 articles, all tend to be brief anatomies. And almost anything Fry says is, um, is not part of a logical chain, but really contains almost everything in miniature. 
Now, an apt analogy, and it's an appropriate one for Fry because of his, of his background, uh, we're, we're used to this with ministers or rabbis or, or whatever religious person of authority, that they can take uh, one passage from the Bible or New or Old Testament or the Koran, and we'll be able to reconstruct a whole religion, the whole basis of their religion out of it. Well, it's, a call, it's called a pericope, I think, uh, among, among preachers. You can take a passage of scripture and then elaborate that into the whole of Christian belief. And Fry has a quality of, of centrality, of, of a comprehensiveness that allows him to say almost everything within a brief statement. I found this with, with students. They would say, well, now, what does Fry mean by this? And I found in trying to say, well, now, this is what Fry means, that I was led more broadly and more broadly into sort of everything that Fry means. As a teacher and writer with an encompassing vision, Fry has reached out to the whole world. But this has never made him forget his Canadian roots. He has written for the CBC, served for nine years on the Canadian Radio and Telecommunications Commission, and for ten years wrote an annual review of English-Canadian poetry for the University of Toronto Quarterly. For him, there is simply no contradiction between his roots and his relevance to the wider world. The longer I've lived, the more I realize that I belong in a certain context, just as a plant grows in the soil. I am a, in a Canadian context. That uh, The more completely I am that, I think the more, well, acceptable I am to, to others. It's the law in literature that I've often expressed by Faulkner's devoting his life to an county with an unpronounceable name in Mississippi and getting a Nobel Prize in Sweden. Fry's writings on Canada and Canadian literature have been collected in two books, The Bush Garden and Divisions on a Ground. It's a measure of how influential they've been that many of the ideas in these books now seem like common sense. It seems to me, Margaret Atwood wrote in 1981, that almost every seminal idea in the newly watered fields of Can Lit sprang from the forehead of Northrop Fry. Fry's vision of Canada begins, as does so much in his work, with an image, an image taken from his journey back to Canada when he returned to Toronto from Oxford in 1939. In uh, the 1930s, you had to go by ship. There weren't any transatlantic flights then. And uh, I suddenly realized when I was in the middle of the Gulf of St. Lawrence, and I was surrounded by five Canadian provinces, all of them invisible. And you don't get that kind of experience anywhere in the United States. What did that image say to you? Well, it said Joan on the Foil, more or less, and uh, the sense of uh, uh, being surrounded on all sides by a frontier, instead of having the frontier over there on the west, which was the American experience. How does your idea of the garrison relate to this insight? The idea well, that there was a garrison mentality in early Upper Canada. I was trying to explain in that phrase the psychological effects, first of all, of the Anglo-French war for the possession of the country, and then the anxieties and moral compulsions of living in a small town, which was as totally isolated as Canadian communities were. I knew something of cultural isolation from having been brought up in Moncton in the 20s. Fry's concept of a garrison mentality in 19th century Canada expressed the difference he saw between this country and the United States. The U.S. had a definite eastern seaboard, and its settlement patterns moved westward towards a definite frontier. Canada, by contrast, swallowed its settlers. Frontiers surrounded them on all sides. The differences also extended to the two countries' politics. The U.S. proceeded deductively within the stable framework of its enlightened 18th century constitution. Canada 
quite untouched by the Enlightenment, lurched inductively from one precarious compromise to the next, torn by competing empires and fractured by its massive and forbidding geography. This led Fry to perceive what he called an argumentative tone in early Canadian writing, and it suggested why Canadian literature developed more slowly than American literature. Canadians were just too obsessed with questions of who they were and where they were and where their fundamental loyalties lay to allow literature the imaginative room it needs to grow. Your normal form of linguistic communication is an argumentative one, that is, uh, you have in every Canadian small town half a dozen churches representing different sets of propositions, and you used to have uh, a, a conservative liberal dialectic politically, which uh, led to a good deal of eloquence and rhetorical passion, but that was the way that Canadians instinctively used words. They didn't use them imaginatively or metaphorically. Canada, as far as Fry is concerned, spent its youth debating the propositions which divided its peoples and its parts. And this kept Canadian writing centered in subliterary forms of expression, sermons, political speeches, and the like. Every proposition is a half-truth, it's a half-proposition. It contains its opposite. That means that using words as propositions is a militant use of words. And to use words metaphorically is to get out of that uh, militant dialectic. But it takes a good deal of security to get to that stage. Canada did eventually get there, in Fry's view but not by becoming a unified nation. It got there through the maturation of regional identities. The cultural imagination, Fry has said, always has something vegetable about it. It needs to put down roots and draw sustenance from its own soil. You get books like Laura's uh, from Colony to Nation, but actually you find that in culture, at any rate, Canada goes from the provincial to the regional, which is the more mature form of provincial culture, without going through the national phase at all. Uh, Canada is too big and too divided to be a cultural entity. There are no Canadian writers, but there are Southern Ontario and British Columbia Maritime Quebec writers, and when you add them all together, you get a Canadian culture with a distinctive uh, feeling of its own. I think I've heard you say that when writers wanted to be Canadian, that was when they couldn't write, in effect. No, you can't, uh, you can't be Canadian by an effort of will. The whole conception behind it is too amorphous. Oh, child of nations, giant limbed. That's Charles G.D. Roberts uh, harumphing about the post-Canadian <laughs> era. But that's not poetry, that's not culture, that's not anything except a manufactured sentiment. So when do you see this regional centering of culture really begin to acquire strength and authority? Well, the difference between the provincial and the regional, as I see it, is that the provincial regards itself as importing its cultural standards from somewhere else, either England or France. So you import your standards, and of course the standards are out of date by the time they arrive. Then, eventually, writers become more aware of international currents sweeping across the world. And those currents bring with them the feeling that cultural standards cannot be met. They can only be established by the writer himself. So you take on international qualities in style which are not homo homogenizing qualities because they take root in different soils in different areas so that Margaret Atwood, Robertson Davies, Alice Monroe, and so forth are very solidly rooted in southern Ontario, but they are not, like Stephen Leacock, uh, provincial writers in the sense of being branch plant writers. They uh, use international techniques and devices that are used across the world, but they're very different from other writers who use them elsewhere. Uh, it's swallowing an international idiom in order to 
mature and establish your own standards instead of accepting standards from elsewhere. And when, and from when do you, and from what writers do you begin to date this? I think uh, if you read a book like uh, Kneister's White Narcissus, you see a very conscientious, uh, carefully written book, which nevertheless seems to reflect standards established elsewhere. That is standards, not techniques, devices, or idioms. So I would call it a, a very good provincial novel with uh, Sarah Jeanette Duncan's imperialist, you're beginning to move from something provincial into something regional. And by Marley Callahan's time, where he's taking on international influence through Gilson Maritime, of course, you've moved into the, the, the regional period, which has escaped the provincial. And from then on, it's, uh, it's an open field. Fry's account of the development of Canadian literature places it in its larger geopolitical matrix. He's been a sort of map maker of the Canadian imagination. In fact, Margaret Atwood has suggested that there's a connection between Fry's attempt to comprehend the inhuman vastness of the Canadian landscape and his attempt to map all of literature in his anatomy of criticism. Fry's heavy emphasis on environmental factors in Canadian history links him to thinkers like Donald Creighton, Marshall McLuhan, and Harold Innes, all once colleagues at the University of Toronto. Like Innes and McLuhan in particular, Fry has also noticed that the other great force shaping Canadian development is technology. He's observed, for example, in the epic poems of his friend and one-time colleague E.J. Pratt, poems which he considers turning points in English-Canadian literature, that the central actors may be railways or radar installations. Technology in Canada overcomes isolation. But Fry, typically balanced, has also noted how it then imposes a new isolation as technology itself becomes our new environment. There is a most pernicious tendency in the human mind to uh, project onto machinery the uh, qualities of external autonomy. Man invents the wheel and in no time he's talking nonsense about a wheel of fate or a wheel of fortune or a wheel which is a cosmological thing which is alienating him from himself. He invents the book and he starts talking about the book of life in which all your sins are recorded. He invents the computer and God knows what he's projecting out of that, but it's all superstition. Fry believes that our inventions can enslave us only if we let them. But he recognizes that as technology improves, it does tend to make people more withdrawn or introverted and can therefore break down society. In the technological developments that I've lived through in the 20th century, I, I do see that each new stage brings with it an intensifying of the introverted. That's simply a hazard which has to be overcome, but it seems to be obvious that uh, in uh, the stage play, you have an ensemble performance for an audience. The existence of the audience as a consensus, as a group, is very important. Then you move into the movie where the audience sits in the dark, where it's individualized, but it's still an audience. Then you move into the television set where you don't move out of your living room. Similarly, on the ocean liner, that's the place for romances and... Uh, and endless discussions and uh, social movements of all kinds. In the jet plane, you just sit there, and uh, the guy beside you sits there, and that's, that's it. So how do you then see the consequences of that? It isn't, it's not a happy picture, it's, gro growing introversion. Well, it's, it's a hazard uh, which has to be overcome. I think that... Uh, Nobody quite realized during the unrest of the 60s uh, that a great deal of it had to do with the panic caused by television and the need to absorb it. I think as time goes on, people do absorb it, bring it under control. Right now, there's a similar fear that uh, computers will increase introversion to a practically solipsistic point where people will simply be locked up in their own private jails. Again, that's a hazard. 
it's something that uh, I think eventually we'll, uh, we'll learn to control. Could you explain a little more why the 60s were a panic caused by television? It was a matter of um, the saturation with images. If you're totally dependent on visual images, it causes a good deal of confusion. Is that stone dame over there Venus or Juno or Minerva? And uh, if it's a matter of, of hearing, you don't have that particular problem. But the saturation of, of images uh, certainly dissipates one's uh, almost one's sense of identity until you begin to get control of it. And you see that that control is beginning to be evident? Well, I think, uh, I think in the course of time, yes, it has uh, become more and more of what a machine ought to be, which is an extension of a personality and not, uh, and not a, uh, an independent personality set over against you. Fry's view of technology is highly characteristic of the man. He sees technology's demonic side, but only as a hazard, not as an inescapable destiny. More pessimistic thinkers have seen technology as overmastering society. Fry, fundamentally an optimist, rejects that possibility out of hand. For him, society is always contested between the forces of life and death always poised between liberation and enslavement. But wherever society stands at the moment in these recurring cycles, redemption remains an inextinguishable possibility. We've uh, gone through history thinking of peace as meaning that the war has stopped, and consequently a lot of people when you use a word like peace, say, well, the world of peace sounds awfully dull, there'd be nothing to do, there's nothing to fight about. And uh, what uh, I would uh, go for is Blake's, I will not cease from mental fight till we have built Jerusalem. On Ideas Tonight, the ideas of Northrop Fry, part two. The program was written and presented by David Cayley. Technical operations by Ron Crocker, field technician Brian Hill, production assistants Gail Brownell and Faye McPherson, producer Sarah Walsh. Special thanks to Jane Widdicombe. You can get a transcript of tonight's Ideas program for $5. Ask for Fry number two, or you can order the whole three-part series for $15. Make your check or money order payable to Ideas Transcripts, Fry, and send it to us at Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. And please specify which program you want. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night.
On Ideas Tonight, The Ideas of Northrop Fry, Part 2. The program was written and presented by David Cayley. Technical operations were by Rod Crocker, field technician Brian Hill, production assistants Gail Brownell and Faye McPherson, producer Sarah Walsh. Special thanks to Jane Widdicombe. You can get a transcript of tonight's Ideas program for $5, ask for Fry number 2, or you can order the whole three-part series for $15. Make your check or money order payable to Ideas Transcripts and send it to us at Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W, 1E6. And please specify which program you want. Delivery will take six to eight weeks from the end of the series. Next week, in the last part of this series, we focus on Northrop Fry's religious views and his writings on the Bible. Join us then. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night.